I, I always say that I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you know I mean that. I'm so glad that you're here tonight. Um, for those of you who are first-timers to a Event Center event, my name is Karen Eichler, and I serve as one of the directors of our Garavana Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university. Um, uh, a couple protocols. This is our second time in this amazing auditorium, and we're still kind of kicking the tires and figuring out um, how, how things work. So if you have feedback for, for me just in terms of logistics, um, I'd be happy to talk to you after the, after the program or our awesome student worker, um, Casey up there will, I'll, she'll take your kudos, I'll take any complaints or suggestions. <laughs> well, can we start with some coming attractions, because we have a very full calendar all the time. Next week, a week from tonight, in our uh, roost over in France Hall, we are hosting a lecture that's titled, uh, The Connection, or The Relation Between the French Revolution and French Catholicism, but really the, the subtitle should be, why did people stay Catholic when they could get their heads cut off for doing that during the revolution? Um, that's going to be next Tuesday. A lot of other things, but the one thing I really want to make sure is on people's radar is on March uh, 21st. We're hosting a concert by the internationally renowned um, liturgical composer Bernadette Farrell. She's been on my bucket list since I took the job. And after that concert, I could get hit by a bus, and it's going to be great. She was the last person on the bus. You sing if, uh, if you are part of a parish. You probably sing at least one of her songs every Sunday. And we are just thrilled that she is flying over from England, which nobody ever does, um, to do a concert for us. Then she's getting on a plane and going back to England. So that's going to be amazing. Uh, and we have a calendar of just such amazing events uh, on the benches on your way outside the Brian Dora Auditorium. If you are a student who is here and you want to make sure that your professor knows you're here, Casey uh, will uh, take sign-ins uh, after, after the lecture tonight, and that will happen in the foyer out there. All right? Well, about six years ago, a couple of first-year students came to us at the Adventist Center and said, we would like to do a talk called Why Theology Needs Stand-Up Comics. And that was not on our radar at all. But they had really internalized what they were learning in their theology courses, that the whole world speaks to us. And it's not just that theologians deliver truth um, to learners and seekers, but that the world has lots to teach us. And it was an amazing program. And uh, after that program, some students said, I would like to give a talk on why theology needs the Simpsons. And that happened. I would like to give a talk on why theology needs Lord of the Rings. And that happened. I would like to give a talk on why theology needs hipsters, which is what we learned about last year. And I know when I announced these talks that next year's talk is sitting out there somewhere. I have no idea who you are, but I can't wait to talk to you uh, after uh, Andrew's presentation. And last year this time, Andrew, who is one of our rock star student workers, said, I think that we need a talk on why theology needs Mari Kondo. And so here we are tonight. In addition to being one of the dapperest uh, dress events on the entire University of Portland campus, Andrew has been an FFA 
part of SLT, part of RCIA, and in May we'll add a BA to all of those documents uh, when he graduates as a senior um, with a degree in theology. And um, I think that is all that I want to say. I know that you're in for a treat, and I'm going to turn things over to Andrew Plasker, Why Theology Needs Mari Kondo. Can everyone hear me well? Great. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I have always dreamed of giving a lecture for the Garaventa Center, um, but it always seemed a little bit of a far-fetched idea. So uh, when I say that tonight is a dream come... Oh, I'm getting a little emotional. Um, when I say that tonight is a dream come true, it, it truly, truly is. Um, I would like to thank the Garaventa Center and the Beckman Humor Project for their support in these endeavor endeavors. The Beckman Humor Project aims to bring a little more light to our world through humor. I believe that the only way that it is possible for us to be open enough to our minds to consider a claim like a Japanese tidying expert can inform us as Christians how to live better spiritual lives is through humor. Um, I would additionally like to thank Dr. Rachel Wheeler whose theology classes and discussions has helped me to get to where I am today on this presentation and whose classes have served as an inspiration for most of this talk. Um, without her kind of world views and discussions, I don't think I would have the mindset it would take to write this talk. In the spirit of the Beckman Humor Project, I originally wanted to write a TED talk and then add like some stand-up comedy into it. Um, but I soon found, after trying to write jokes, that there's a reason I'm a theology major and not pursuing stand-up comedy. <laughs> However, in the spirit of the Beckman Humor Project, I hope that I have found a way to make tonight informational and interesting. Before we begin, I would like to take everyone, I invite everyone to take a moment to pause, to let go of whatever has happened today and this week, and be present in the moment. To my fellow students, I know many of you are here partly because of class credit, and so I would like to say don't worry about taking notes, we're recording this, it'll be online, and you can listen to it later for your theology um, work. So, let's take a few seconds. Okay, let's begin. Marie Kondo. Who is Marie Kondo? Marie Kondo is a Japanese businesswoman who calls herself a, quote, tidying consultant, end quote. She's starting her tidying consultant career at the age of 19 during her university times. Sometimes that makes me feel a little bit of an underachiever. Um, over the course of her career, she has developed what she calls the Marie Method, which is a portmanteau of her familial name and her personal name, which is a method of tidying up designed not only to tidy one's house, but to shift their outlook on living to live simple, tidy lifestyles. In 2011, she published her now world-famous book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which she lays out her method and theory and coined the phrase, spark joy. Since her book became an international bestseller, she ex expanded her business to bring tidying across the world. In 2019, she has rocketed to new fame, especially among my generation, with the Netflix television series, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. In fact, she's become so popular that my father, who is a computer engineer and seems to avoid pop culture at all cost, over Christmas break said, and I quote, this does not spark joy, end quote, when his computer wasn't working. 
So to say that she is a part of our culture now in the United States is a bit of an understatement. In order to understand Mari Kondo, we must first understand the context in which she comes from, which is Shinto. This is necessary to understand the dimensions of spirituality that exist in her work. Kondo spent five years as a Shinto shrine maiden. Shrine maidens are fundamental to the function of the shrines. They assist the priests in rituals general and general upkeep of the shrine. So it should have no surprise that Shinto is at the center of the Konri method. Shinto is the native religion of the Japanese archipelago. Shinto has no set founder, set doctrine, or canon of scripture. And in fact, Shinto was not centralized until the Meiji Restoration, which was during the 19th century. This has led to Shinto being a uniquely Japanese religion with an extremely diverse and vibrant localism to each part of Japan. So, when I speak about Shinto, I will be speaking in overarching terms that apply to a large majority of their practices around and throughout the country. The word Shinto translates to mean way of the gods. In Shinto, the term god is also called kami quite often, so you might also hear it called the way of the kami. But what does it mean to be a kami? At first, we must understand that when Shinto used the word kami to mean god, in the Western theological traditions, we understand gods and God in a classical sense, usually rooted in a Greek understanding. We think of a Greek pantheon where you have almighty and powerful gods who rule over their own niches in the natural world. You think of the Abrahamic religions who use words like omnipresent, omniscient, omnibelevolent, and omnipotent to describe a monotheistic God, a God who is God of all that is. However, this concept, we need to put in a nice little box and put that box on a shelf for the course of this presentation. A um, famous Edo period scholar describes Kami beautifully when he says, whatever seems strikingly impressive possesses a quality of excellence and virtue and inspires a feeling of awe is called Kami. For the Shinto, gods or Kami are, that is what is beyond human capacity. The kami are a recognition of um, that which we cannot understand, that which has a transcendent nature. Some obvious kami are things like the mountains, the sea, and the land. The kami, uh, the, Shinto, the Association of Shinto Shrines in Japan, which is the governing body of all Shinto shrines, states that, according to Shinto cosmology, the world was created by the appearance of a single kami who represents the universe. Next appears the kamis of birth and growth. Male and female came from the heavens, and the various deities of land, Japan, of the land of Japan, her nature, and all of her people <coughs> came from that. The Shinto faith begins with this belief in this method, in mythology. Therefore, Shinto does not recognize a difference or discontinuation between the kami, nature, and human beings. In Shinto, all is interconnected. All of the universe is kin, and therefore all of the universe is sacred. To use Christian terms, everything is sacramental. This sacredness underlies all of Marie Kondo's work, by understanding the sacredness, she can teach us how the life-changing magic of tidying up is a book about more than just ways to put our home in order. It is a way to live a contemplative, sacramental, 
and joy-sparking life in the modern world. Sacramentality. One of the first things that stood out to me about Marie Kondo was her practice of home greeting. I decided to watch her television show because I'd heard she had some great tips for organization and I thought to myself, looking at my closet, my closet could really use some organization. <laughs> so let's give this show a shot. I soon realized, sorry my father just said this is true. Um, I soon realized that tidying up with Marie Kondo went deeper than just organizing one's closet, one's drawers, and one's pantries. I recognize that there's a spiritual dimension to Kondo's work and the process of tidying up. In her book, she explains the practice of home greetings, and I'd like to read that passage for you really quickly. It is entitled, Do You Greet Your House? The first thing I do when I visit a client's home is to greet their house. I kneel formally in the, on the floor in the center of the house and address the house in my mind. After giving a brief self-introduction, including my name, my address, and occupation, I ask the house to create a space where the family can enjoy a happier life. I then bow in a silent moment of ritual that takes only a minute or two, but this elicits some strange looks from my clients. I began this custom quite naturally based on the etiquette of worship at Shinto shrines. I don't remember exactly when I started doing this practice, but I believe I was inspired to do it because of the tense expectancy that is in the air when a client opens their door resembles the atmosphere of one passing under a shrine, great, shrine gate and entering the sacred precincts. You may think such a ritual can only have a placebo effect, but I have noticed a real difference in the speed at which tidying occurs when I perform it. It may seem odd that one would greet an inanimate object and treat it almost as having a being, and that such action could have power. But we have to look at her Shinto tradition for, to understand this. Greeting a house is about recognizing the role that this object has played in our lives. It's about seeing the sacred and recognizing that which gives feeling of awe in our lives. In the case of the house, Kondo recognizes that one's house has a history and a sacramental value. It is almost as if the life takes on a house of its own. And for her, that is the kami. It is something that we interact with and which we attach emotions to. It has a transcendent nature and therefore a sacred quality, so of course we're going to give it respect. Kondo recognizes that this experience applies to more than just our homes, and in fact to everything that we own. She writes, the things we own are real. They exist here and now as a result of choices we have made in the past by no one other than ourselves. It is dangerous to ignore them and discard them indiscriminately as if denying we've made these choices. This is why I am both against letting uh, things pile up and discarding indiscriminately. It is only when we face the things that we own one by one, experiencing the emotions that they invoke, that we can truly appreciate the relationship that we have with them. Such an outlook is what the Christian writer Thomas Berry called moving from a collection of objects to a communion of subjects. 
Recognizing the interconnected nature that we have with all the things that we own is an important part of a sacramental worldview. In the Christian tradition, it's so easy for us to have this dichotomy where you see that which is sacred being confined within four walls of a church and that everything that is outside of that is somehow not sacred. Yet Kondo reminds us that there's something here that we've forgotten. Every part of creation and the world is part of the sacred revelation of God. Everything has a sacramental quality. Kondo instructs her students to thank each object for a job well done. This practice is about recognizing that while an object is not living, it is the subject of being, of existence. It has matter, it has form, you can touch it, you can feel it, it's real. The rubber soles of your pair of shoes have being. They have a story of how they went from being a rubber tree to being the soles of your shoes. The leather upper parts have being. They have a story of how they became shoes. Saying thank you is a way of recognizing that the story, of recognizing the story and reminding us that the item has being, even if it doesn't have life. When it comes to discarding things, Kondo insists that this practice be used. When discarding items, it is important to recognize their sacramental dimension. Simply because an item is no longer relevant to our lives does not mean it somehow lost its sacramental value. As one chooses items to discard, Kondo insists that we say thank you to each item. This is most seen in her Netflix television show when she asks people to go through the items of clothing that they own, holding each one and saying thank you before putting it in the donation pile. In she believes that it is important to recognize the relationship one has with these items before letting it go. Even if we, even if this teaching with the person, or even, sorry, even if this was teaching the good person, or the person, that this was not a good color for them to wear. Botch that joke, but that's fine. <laughs> Honoring the story and the relationship is paramount to her outlook. Kondo aims to change the way that we think through her rituals of home greeting and thanking our items. Yet, interestingly, this is not terribly new to Christianity. For centuries, we have looked at religious items, paintings, statues, and we have recognized how through their art they can reveal God. We have turned to nature and reflected how the plants, the animals, the rocks, the water, the heavenly bodies can reflect images of God, we need to look no, no further than the Canticle of the Sun, written by St. Francis of Assisi. Does it seem so strange, then, that we could look at the things we own and say that they might have a sacramental value added to them? Now, I'd like to clarify something here. I'm not advocating that the whole Catholic Church needs to suddenly convert to Shintoism and see everything that gives us any sort of awe as kami or deity. I will claim, however, that if we look through life with the, Mari, uh, the Cone Marie method, that we as Christians can better see how God is present in all things. We can see how we interact with things and how all the good we experience with those things 
is part of God revealing God's self to us. As such, we should treat everything we interact with as having this spiritual dimension. And we can in turn learn to see life through a sacramental lens. Another thing her method teaches us is contemplation. There's a misconception in Pondo's work and her subsequent practices that it's only about organization and storage. Yes, those are factors of her work, but she's calling all her readers and students to so much more. By a show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the show or familiar with the book, having read it or seen the show? Okay, a good number of you. Good. Great. Those of you who've raised your hands know what I'm talking about when I say that. Kondo's mission is not just about tidying houses, but about transforming lifestyles. Kondo says that, quote, tidying is a special event. Don't do it every day, end quote. She says this because she sees that there are two types of tidying. There's what we usually think of, which is the daily task of picking up after yourself and putting things back on shelves and in closets. And then a second type, which is this grand form of putting one's entire house in order and their life as well. The second form of tidying is the one that she's more concerned with in her work because she believes that if that one is done, then our daily tidying will happen naturally. But how is this possible that one action can lead to an entire change in lifestyle? The answer is living life through an intentional and contemplative lifestyle. I would like to demonstrate this lifestyle by reading another selection from her book, which is entitled, Designate a Place for Everything. This is the routine I follow every day when I return home from work. First, I unlock my door and announce to my house, I'm home. Picking up the pair of shoes that I wore yesterday and had left in the entrance, I say, thank you for your hard work and put them away in the shoe cupboard. Then I take off the shoes that I wore today and place them neatly in the entryway in that spot. <clears throat> Heading to the kitchen, I put on a kettle and go to my bedroom. There I lay out my handbag gently on a soft sheepskin rug and take out take off my outdoor clothes. I put on I put my jacket on its hanger and say good job and then temporarily hang my clothes on the doorknob. I put my tights in the laundry and uh, that fit the laundry basket that fits in the bottom right corner of my closet, open a drawer, and select the clothes that I feel like wearing inside and get dressed. I greet a waist-high potted plant that sits by the window and, strokes, and stroke its leaves. My next task is to empty the contents of my handbag on the rug and put each item away in its place. First, I remove all receipts. Then I put my wallet in its designated box under my bed with a word of gratitude. I place my train pass and my business cards in a holder beside it and put my wristwatch in an antique case that's in the same drawer. I then place my necklace and earrings and accessories in a tray beside it. Before closing the drawer, I say, thank you for all that you did to, for me today. Next, I, turn, I return to the entrance and put away the books and notebooks that I carried around all day. I've converted a shelf of my shoe cupboard into a bookshelf. 
From the shelf below, I take out my receipt pouch and put my receipts in it. Then I put my digital camera that I'd use for work in the space beside it, which is reserved for electronic things. Papers that I'm finished with go in the recycling bin beneath the kitchen range. In the kitchen, I make a pot of tea and check my mail and dispose of the letters that I'm finished with. I return to my bedroom, put my empty handbag, put away my empty handbag in the closet and say, thank you for a job well done, have a good rest. From the time I get home to the time I close my closet door, I total only about five minutes. Now I can go back to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of tea, and relax. When I read this passage, I cannot help but find it spiritual. The way in which she goes about her routine of arriving home almost seems like a liturgical movement. There exists in it not only a deep attitude of sacramentality, but a level of intentional practice that I can only describe as something that is contemplative. When I say contemplative lifestyle, I would imagine most of you probably conjure up images of Carthusian monks from the documents Into Great Silence, or Carmelite nuns in their uh, brown habits. However, this model of contemplation is not the only one. Kondo shows us that we too, in our busy modern lives, can be contemplatives. In a reflection on the experience of tidying, Kondo states, while not exactly a meditative state, there is something when I am cleaning that I cannot, er, that I can quietly commune with myself. The work of carefully considering each object I own and see whether or not it sparks joy is something like a conversation with myself through the medium of possessions. This is where Mari, Kondo, and I have a slight disagreement. I would argue that tidying is in fact a meditative state. Through tidying and doing our chores, we can find a contemplative space to pray, to reflect, to meditate. As she puts it, tidying is a dialogue with oneself. Through, we can listen to the inner stirrings of our mind and our heart. But how does someone do something like this? How does someone go from your regular laity to an almost monastic type person? The answer is formation. When one wants to become a religious brother or sister, they go through spiritual formation. Usually, this is many, many years in a religious uh, community, whether it be a monastery or a seminary or an abbey or a cloister. For Kondo, this formation process is this giant act of putting your house in order tidying up that she talks about over the course of her book. She says, the lives of those who tidy thoroughly and completely in one single shot are without exception dramatically altered. She so boldly claims this. When it comes to the Conmarie method of tidying up, the first big tidy that we have of our whole house is our formation process. As a first step for this process, she instructs her followers, think in concrete terms so that you can picture what it would be like. We can picture what a tidy house is. What is it? Um, I would like everyone to take a moment really quickly to try this with me. 
Please close your eyes and picture one place in your house, your apartment, your room that you know could probably be a little tidier. What does it currently look like? What do you want it to look like? Do you have that image? Now open your eyes. Congratulations. In a small way, you have just had a contemplative thought. <laughs> These are the seeds of the contemplative lifestyle. And from there, we must act. For the contemplative lifestyle, as Dr. Wheeler has taught me, is about more than just thoughtful thoughts. It is also about thoughtful actions. Now that this first step is complete, it is time to move on to the grand tidying of one's household. Kondo strongly advocates that this should be done in a marathon-like process. And in fact, her whole system is based on this one principle for tidying. But does that not make sense? Is it not common that one who wants to become a member of a religious community has to pick themselves out of their current lifestyle and enter formation in an uninterrupted way in order to train themselves in a new way of living? One of the results that Kondo claims for tidying up her, in her formation process is a confidence in one's ability to make decisions when it comes to tidying. And that through that, we can deal with the emotions and thoughts that go along with keeping, organizing, and disguiding our belongings. Such a rigorous process can only be done intentionally and teaches one how to be intentional in their thoughts, to be cognizant of their emotions and present in each and every moment of tidying, even if it's just the daily putting away of the contents of our purse or backpack. So, what does it look like once one has left this process of formation, so to speak? Well, the quite simple answer is now you have a lifetime of con contemplation ahead of you. Sometimes, yeah, this takes the form of simply recognizing one's shoes and saying a word of gratitude for how they've helped you through that day. Maybe you stepped in some gum so they kept it from getting on your sock. Or maybe, I can find my place. Okay. Um, other times, it means actively meditating and praying during the course of tidying. One of my goals, on, or one of my hats that I wear here on campus is Chapel Laundrarian, which, as my friends can attest, is just a really fancy title that means that I take care of all the linens we use for mass. My friend Elizabeth likes to remind me that I am Father Tim's laundry boy. <laughs> I easily spend three plus hours every Friday doing laundry. Would you believe me if I told you that I enjoyed this? Not only do I enjoy this, but as Father Tim can attest, I look forward to it every week. For me, this is one of the most spiritual part of my weeks. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure that it is news to no one that washing and folding laundry is not exactly the most exciting thing and doesn't exactly take a lot of mental focus. However, I have found that I can take this somewhat routine task and turn it into a contemplative experience. As I fold the purificators 
which are the um, linens that we use to wipe the cups after someone has partaken uh, in the precious blood. I find myself lining up the corners, creating a good crease, pressing it with the iron, and repeating this process with each purificator for at least an hour before moving on to the next type of linen. By focusing on folding, I can create a rhythm, and in turn this rhythm allows me the mental space to slip out of this world. I can think in this space, I can meditate, I can pray. Imagine if we did this with our daily tidying in each of our own lives. Imagine if we went through the process of putting away our things when we got home from work in such a way that we slipped into a meditative routine. Imagine if this routine allowed us not only to see the sacramental nature that exists in each item that we're putting away and, the, and our home around us, but also allowed us to pray. Imagine if we did our daily chores of picking up, we were attuned to these realities in such a way that even sweeping the floor and doing dishes could be contemplative and be prayerful. This is the life of a modern contemplative, and this is the goal of the Conry method. I knew I was going to talk about it because I can't not talk about sparking joy. Does this spark joy? This is the single most thing, the single most famous thing Kondo has ever said. This concept of sparking joy has taken our nation by storm. This concept seems to have touched our national heartstrings. But what does she want us to do in answer to this question? The simple answer is to follow our hearts when tidying up. On the topic of discarding and keeping items, she writes, we should choose what we want to keep, not what we want to get rid of. Kondo believes that if we're going to tidy our lives, we must frame it through the process and uh, the process in such a way that culling our items is a, has a sense of optimism. We need to find what sparks joy in our hearts and keep those things, letting the others fall away. She writes, Now imagine yourself living in a space that contains only the things that spark joy. Isn't this the life you dream of? See, it is better to have a few things that spark joy than a lot of things that don't. This is the crux of the Conmarie method and the idea of sparking joy. So, how does one know if they spark joy? How do we know what items to keep? Well, Kondo writes that choosing things that spark choose things that spark joy when you touch them. When something truly sparks joy in our hearts, we know it. We get this feeling of joy that flutters up from within us. In fact, the word that she uses in the Japanese to say spark can also translate into English to mean flutter. We know what this looks like. We know what it, what it looks like to hold a photo of a favorite memory or to hold an item that belonged to one of our kids. These are the things that give us such great joy that even though they could be completely meaningless to the world, they're irreplaceable to us. We must listen to our hearts carefully. She instructs her readers, believe what your heart tells you when you ask it. Does this spark joy? She says this because she knows that this can not, or this is not always easy at times. 
Maybe easy for certain sentimental things, but harder for more mundane things. Listening to our heart is a delicate process, and we must trust it, even when our reason seems like it might get in the way. How many of you have ever found something and thought to yourself, I should keep this, I might need it later, promptly put it back where you found it, and then not touch it again for a very long time? <laughs> yeah, we all fall for that one. But the Connery Method teaches us that we need to listen to the stirrings of our heart and act upon them. In fact, she believes that often we have a hard time letting go of things because we fail to recognize how our heart is feeling. We fail to recognize the anxiety that we might attach to the concept of letting things go, even if it's an irrational anxiety. Because let's be honest, who needs three, three one-fourth teaspoon measures? No one does. But you might have three, and you might be inclined to keep all three of them because you never know when two are in the dishwasher and you need one-fourth of a teaspoon of something for the cake that you're baking. <laughs> now, we laugh because we know it's illogical, but it's definitely something we've all fallen for. We fear going without, and that can be the barrier to us living a life that is truly only surrounded by the things that we need and the things that spark joy. Now, I say the things that we need, and we must be careful um, with this concept, because if we follow this principle too much, we I, might end up living either a life of hedonism ignoring, ignoring, and ignoring the things that are non-joy-sparking <coughs> but are necessities. Kondo addresses this in her work. She makes a distinction between the things we need and the things which we do not. What we need, we keep. What we do not need, we keep only if it sparks joy. Remember, she advocates not, um, she advocates to look at what you are keeping and not what you are getting rid of. Should not, uh, you should not look around and go, this does not spark joy, therefore I'm just going to get rid of it. That is how you end up discarding your electric bill, your vegetables, and your teenage son who's being a little too moody this week. <laughs> My mom knows what that's like. So, this is a great outlook for life, but how do we then take this and transfer it to our spiritual practices? Well, imagine everything in the history of Christian spirituality is in one giant pile, and now you have to go through it. You have to decide what you're going to keep and what you're going to discard. Probably should have put that side up so you could follow along. I assert that this is essentially the process of discerning spiritual practices that are right for you. There are certain things that are necessities, like our weekly observance of the, stat of the Sabbath. We are a communal people, and so community is important to our faith. So we put those things in our keep pile. Then we get to discern the rest of the pile and decide what sparks joy in our spiritual lives, what forms of prayer forms of meditation, and forms of fellowship are, more, are most spiritually fruitful for us. Those are the items we keep. Those are the spiritual things which we surround ourselves with. Those are the things that create a rich faith life. For example, 
And yes, I did put a meme in the most important presentation of my life. <laughs> I am a very visual person. I find that sacred art and images are a way for me to enhance my prayer practices. So for me, praying with images from our university's copy of the St. John's Bible is something that I find is a great source of joy, whereas praying with just simply the text, while fruitful, does not cause that same level of joy. This is something for me to take note of and take advantage of when I want to pray with biblical passages, especially considering we have several copies of the um, the, the, non the regular version of it um, in our library. <laughs> I know there's a term for it. I'm sorry, Dr. Eifler. <laughs> I should know this. We use it for a lot of our Garavana Center events. <laughs> Maybe instead of just reading passages, I can read it and do a Visio Divina, which is a meditation on sacred imagery with the corresponding images from the St. John's Bible. When we pray and meditate in those ways which spark the most joy for us, we have a more fruitful experience. When we have a more fruitful experience, we grow in our relationship with God. By listening to the spiritual longings of our heart, we can become more attuned to how spiritual practices spark joy, how the joy is directed toward a fuller and more intimate relationship with our God. In conclusion, the work of the of the um, of Mari Kondo is deeply spiritual, and while based in the Shinto tradition, can have a can shed great light on our own theological traditions. Her Shinto faith informs informs her that all the world is sacred, including everyday items. By studying her example, we as Christians, can develop a lens through which we see the world as sacred. Even if our understanding of um, how God reveals himself through these things is different than how Marie Kondo sees so much of the world as God. Her tidying practices teach us that contemplation is not only for monks and nuns. Through thoughtful and intentional work, she shows us how we can create a mental space for meditation and prayer, where we in can be in conversation with ourselves and with the sacred dimensions of God that we experience. She shows us how we can be modern contemplatives in her daily life, in our daily life. Through her concept of sparking joy, Kondo teaches us how to listen to our heart and learn what is most meaningful for us. Learning what spark joy teaches us the methods of prayer and spiritual living that will draw us most closely and most deeply and most intimately into relationship with God. The Cone Marie Method, in short, teaches us how to be more spiritual Christians, and that is why theology needs Mari Kondo. Thank you. Uh, we have a couple minutes for a couple questions, if anybody would like to engage uh, with Andrew. Dr. Trimblum? Um, just listening, to, I haven't watched the show or read the book. Yes. Uh, a copy of the book at my house? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's 
I'm wondering if a lot of the way that tidying is described seems to be an individual process. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it is fundamentally individual or can you do communal tidying? You can, and she actually she talks about that. Um, she talks about how there's a very delicate balance between that. Um, because she recognizes, yeah, a lot of the people who are looking at our work are families, are parents that are looking to not only tidy their own lives, but also the life of their spouse, their children. Um, it's interesting, though, because she does say that when you're tidying, you shouldn't necessarily let your family get involved because they might try to influence your way of thinking. But she also understands that, um, yeah, communal living is a communal process, and that through tidying like the things that are uniquely yours within a house, within a relationship, will then in turn kind of cascade into their portions and that you two together can have that dialogue of tidying, but that it, it does start as an individual process. Does that answer your question? Yeah, great. Other questions? I think I saw another hand somewhere. Dr. Astoria? You know, when we were talking, I was, talk I was thinking of people who live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And our life of poverty qualifies all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and that's what dehumanizes. That's why poverty dehumanizes people. Yeah. Things in order to live without things, um, yeah, and that that leads to a whole another conversation about poverty. That's an important conversation to have. Um, but I, I think too, with that, one of the things she teaches us, since she teaches us how to live with what we need and not to live in excess, that does shed light on what it means to live in poverty and what it means then for us as people who don't live in poverty, kind of how we live in excess. And I think it. I think it does create. I know within myself, it's definitely created a dialogue of how do I view how I live, especially in context of people who don't have the luxury of being able to just throw things out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Great presentation, Andrew. Uh, my question is, uh, how did you first come across Marie Kondo, and then why did you choose to do this talk? Yeah, um, so funny enough, my very first recollection of her was actually in a comedian's, like, stand-up special, where she just, like, mentioned something about it, and so I googled it, I was like, oh, that's interesting, and then it just kind of somewhere filed away in the back of my mind, um, and then when the Netflix show came out and I watched it was when I first started really um, kind of getting into her work. It says so much about Andrew that gentlemen of Christie are here to support him, and I'm really grateful to see you and so many of Andrew's faculty um, members from the Department of Theology are here. We're very grateful that you came out to support. Uh, this is also a tribute to you. You did some really good work in the formation of a young man who can put thoughts together like that. Um, I think we'll call it good for the evening. I know that next year's Why Theology Needs blank, blank, blank. You, somebody is going to fill in those blanks, and I look forward to that. I forgot to mention at the beginning, if you are a teacher in any kind of K-12 school and...